All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Rob. I'm the senior pastor here, in case you don't know me. Uh, never know, like, when the 4th of July is on Wednesday. Where, when are you supposed to celebrate? Is it next weekend? It's the whole week. We get, like, multiple Sundays of happy 4th, everyone. <laughs> uh, this past week, I had the, the joy and the privilege of going to Indiana for a conference with our denominational affiliation, Converge, and it was awesome. Uh, as I was there, I just couldn't help but think to myself, we are so blessed and privileged to be a part of this. Uh, one of the things that Converge is really getting passionate about right now is reaching um, a cross-section of the world called the unengaged uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you were to break up the, the world into thirds, 33% of the world, give or take, uh, is quote-unquote Christian. Uh, those are places where the church is pretty established, the gospel is moving along pretty well. Uh, another third of the world, it would be classified as unreached or underreached. So this is where the gospel is not going forward um, as rapidly, uh, a much less percentage. And then another third of the world is called unengaged. So essentially 33% of the world where the gospel has never gone forth, where there's no churches, where no one is preached. Uh, it was shocking to me. Do you know how well Coke, as in Coca-Cola, has done at evangelizing the world for their purposes? 97% saturation of the world. And so here we have <laughs> the Church of Jesus Christ where there's people drinking bottles of Coke, but they've never heard the gospel. Uh, so as I was sitting there and thinking about those things, I just said to myself, I want to get a piece of that action. You know, I want to make sure that we're the type of church that is doing this type of stuff. So you know, we're just going to start praying about that. God, how, how would you like to use us? How would you like us to bring the gospel to places where the gospel has never been heard before? So I'm going to ask you guys and invite you guys to just be praying about that with me, and we'll see what God does in and through us. If you would, open your Bibles. We're going to Genesis chapter 13, Genesis 13, and uh, we're continuing on in this series, Unconventional, and it's an interesting story that we'll be looking at this morning. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you, and uh, Genesis is the easiest book to find. It's the first book of the Bible. Nearly 200 years ago, there were two brothers, uh, one named David, the other John Livingston. John Livingston, at a young age, determined in his heart that he was going to go out and be a successful, prominent businessman. And I'll tell you what, John really took the bull by the horns and he became a successful businessman. But it's interesting when you look at the lives of these two brothers, if you were to go back and read an old historical Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, the, the uh, encyclopedia would speak of John as just being the brother of David Livingston. Interesting. While John had dedicated himself to making money, David had invested his life as a missionary to Africa. And one of the things that he said uh, and resolved within himself was that, I will place no value on anything I have or possess unless it is in relationship to the kingdom of God. On his headstone in Westminster Abbey, it says this, For 30 years, his life was spent in an unwearied effort to evangelize. 
So here you have two men, two brothers, two very different approaches to life and, and two different outcomes. Now, in the text that we're looking at this morning, we're reading about two characters, Abraham and Lot. In the book of Genesis, there are 13 chapters that are devoted to telling us about Abraham's story. And you know, five of those chapters deal with his nephew, Lot. Why? Why talk about him? Well, because Lot is a foil to Abraham. A foil is a person who contrasts with and emphasizes and enhances the, the qualities of another. So Lot's job in the book of Genesis is to make Abraham look good while Lot chooses to live the conventional life. I mean, how would you like that to be uh, your recorded history? You are a foil to someone else who is living by faith. I wouldn't want that. So now we're going to pick up the story. Uh, we see that Abraham has returned back into the promised land. Remember, he was met with a crisis in the promised land, famine. So he goes down to Egypt, takes matters into his own hands. Now that he returns, he is going to be faced with a second crisis. This one is called the crisis of prosperity. Now, isn't it interesting? You wouldn't think of it that way, the crisis of prosperity. We tend to think of poverty as the crisis and prosperity as the promised land. I appreciate this quote from Thomas Carlyle. I've quoted it before. Adversity is sometimes hard upon a man, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. It's so true. Character is generally developed, built up in adversity, but it's proven in prosperity when we're doing well. So let's look at the story. Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him in the Negeb. Now Abram was a very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And when the text talks of Abram being um, rich, it talks of him being heavy. The idea in the Hebrew mind of rich is someone is loaded down with lots of things. We talk about someone being what? Loaded today. That guy is loaded. He's filthy rich, right? Well, the Bible, when it talks about materials and wealth and possessions, it never says something along the lines of money's a bad thing or it's, it's wrong to be rich or anything like that. No, the Bible nuances it out a little bit. So when it talks about prosperity and wealth and those types of things, Luke quotes Jesus as saying, blessed are the poor. And James makes this unconventional statement, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. It's not that the Bible's saying that poor people are more spiritual than rich people. But it is saying that rich people have a lot of things weighing them down. It can be very heavy to be rich. Proverbs 10.16 says, The earnings of the godly enhance their lives, but evil people squander their money on sin. Not many of us can handle wealth. 
I don't know if I could. If I was to somehow fall into a bunch of money one day, uh, I tell you, Humam Surhal would have to change his number because I'd be calling him 24-7. If some of us were to fall upon $100 million, it would be an absolute catastrophe for our life. But then again, some of us would get that money and we would work towards the right ends. We would see it as an entrustment from God. We would seek to maximize it and put it to work. Uh, The wealth, we would have the wealth, but the wealth wouldn't have us. You see, there's an important principle with money in the Bible, and it's this. Wealth can be both a blessing and a curse, depending on the person. And sometimes it can be both. So one of the curses associated with money is actually found right here in the text, and that is that money can divide families. Look at verses 5 through 7 with me. The, the text continues, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, were dwelling in the land. Interestingly enough, this scuffle happens because there's these Canaanites and Perizzites, right? And they're occupying the land. And Abram and Lot are both heavy with things. So much so that they're no longer getting along. Now, I think what is sad about this scuffle between these two is two things. First, they're both believers. If you ever question in the Bible whether or not uh, Lot's a believer, 2 Peter 2.7 calls Lot righteous. And when the Bible speaks of someone being righteous, it's not because they're a really, really, really good person. It's because they found God by faith. The second thing that is a big problem is that these two are squabbling uh, because they're, they have too much. There's too many possessions. kind of like kids when they fight. Ever seen the little kids? Aren't they adorable? I know there's some kids in this room this morning. I know you guys don't do this. You're good kids. You listen to your parents. But some kids do fight. Mommy, his knees are on my side of the bed. Daddy, he's poking me right now. And you know how those conflicts just erupt when the, the traffic starts piling upon you, doesn't it? Or, or, Mommy, why does he get more of the brownie than I do? Have you ever noticed how children have this uncanny ability to see measurements and distributions of junk food? You put two glasses of milk together and, and they pull out the micrometer to see if there's been equity and they start protesting for their civil rights if the volumes are off. Well, some habits don't die with youth, do they? I've heard stories of families that have been ripped apart after the death of a parent when it came time to divide the inheritance. Brothers who grew up together, brothers who played cards together, brothers who went on vacations together, brothers who had resolved within themselves that they were going to raise their kids and nieces and nephews were going to get to know each other are now standing in opposing sides in the court of law. Where you have situations where siblings or parents haven't met face to face, haven't picked up the phone, will no longer send one another even a a Christmas card to say, how are you doing at Christmas time because of some thing that happened. Maybe they remember. Maybe they don't. 
but they've wronged me. I'm seething with anger. I want to hurt them as much as they hurt me. I'll be darned if I'm the first one to step across that line of hostility. It's ugly. How does God feel about conflicts and and quarreling and fights? Well, Paul tells his protege, Timothy, again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach and, and be patient with difficult people. I see no place in the scriptures where quarreling is a good thing. It's always wrong. It's always sinful. It always comes from the wrong place. And so in this situation, Abram has one of two choices. He can either escalate, ramp up this situation. He can fight to win with Lot. Or he can seek to resolve this conflict. So let's see what he does. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Sometimes, the only way to resolve a strife is a separation. But I want to be quick to note here that it it really shouldn't and it really doesn't have to be that way. Abram offers separation as an avenue of peace because as we're going to read on in the story, we'll see that, that Lot isn't spiritually minded like he is. He doesn't get it. Abram has his mind set on eternal matters. Lot's thinking about right now. Abram wants to uh, make peace with his nephew. Lot isn't really interested in anything but winning in the situation. Abram's confidence is in God's provision and his commitment to the promises that he's made to Abraham. Lot is going by the the maxim, I'm going to get mine. So there's no conflict between Uh, two individuals who are spiritually minding, thinking about God's purposes and ends. No, this is about one guy who is walking by unconventional faith and another guy who's walking by conventional sights. Isn't it amazing how often the Bible talks about conflict? All over the place. I wonder if conflict is something that we all deal with. I see a couple of principles in this passage in case you're one of the few who do occasionally deal with conflict. Look at how Abraham handles this. Look at this first principle. Your goal is peace, not winning. Abram words it like this, let there be no strife between you and me. He's displaying his heart to pursue peace. He doesn't ramp up the situation. He doesn't say, look at that lot. He's a spoiled little brat. Doesn't that feel good sometimes to say things like that? (laughs) Don't. He doesn't go about forming his coalition. Did you see what he did to me? I know, right? He is the worst person in the world that I know. No. He meets with Lot and talks face to face with him. His goal is not to get the best territory. His goal is to preserve the relationship. Friends, people are far more important than winning. 
they're far more important than being right. Jesus tells us that we are most like God when we seek to make peace. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And how far was God willing to go to make peace? To the farthest ends. God became man. God dwelt among us. He made peace by the blood of his cross. Romans chapter 12. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I wonder how many conflicts are happening because we're wise in our own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with the people that you like. No. With only those who don't make you mad. Nope. With all. Second principle. Remember your relationship. Abraham says, for we are brothers. What would happen if we remembered our relationships more often? I wonder if in the church, if we said, for we are brothers, how many of those conflicts would go away? I don't know about you, but I'm the type of person that when I'm in a conflict, I like to dehumanize the other person, depersonalize the situation. So if I'm having an argument with my beautiful, precious wife who who God's given me and I'm just so thankful for her, when I'm feeling salty with her, I say, she! Depersonalizing third-person pronoun, or fighting with someone within the church, he, depersonalizing third-person pronoun. But what if instead I said to myself, my brother in Christ, or my precious wife? I wonder if that would change the thought process. Thirdly, lay down your rights. How do you turn a fight into a non-event in two seconds flat? You start acting like Jesus. You lay down your rights. That is what Abraham does in this encounter. Lot, you choose. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. That is so unconventional. I mean, Abraham is the guy holding all the cards. He's the head of this family. He's the decision maker. He's the one that has the right to choose. It's his by virtue of his place within the family. No one would look any way or cross-eyed at him if he was to say, I'm going to take the best for me. In fact, Lot is probably sitting there thinking to himself, this old man's lost a step or two. What is he doing right now? Abraham's decision to say no to fighting and yes to giving stopped this brewing conflict dead in its tracks. It took it from a volatility level of 10 and brought it down to zero with one sentence. One. I love that Christology that we get from Philippians chapter 2 and in it, Paul encourages us to be willing to lay down our rights because our Savior did. He said, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble Thinking of others is better than ourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. We'll stop depersonalizing when we become intentionally, intensely interested in others. They have hopes, fears. They have struggles. 
They have situations. I wonder if I would think differently in that moment if I put myself in their shoes and, and I started thinking about the world from their perspective. He continues, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Eternally rich, holding all the cards having all of the divine privileges. Friend, what do you deserve? What do I deserve? I think of this story that Harry Ironside told. He was the former pastor of Moody Church. When he was a young boy, he remembers going to a church business meeting. Imagine that, people fighting at a church business meeting. And it gets intense, and these two guys are just kind of lobbing verbal bombs at one another to the point that they stand up and they're actually about to start throwing fists at one another. And one of the guys shouts, I don't care what you do, I insist on my rights. Hearing that, an older man who was partially deaf leaned forward in his chair, cupped his ear in his hand, and said, What did you say, brother? Your rights. If you were going to get your rights, dear brother, you'd be in hell. The Lord Jesus didn't come to get his rights. He came to get his wrongs. And he got them. The angry man blushed deeply and he pulled upon his collar and said, Sir, you are absolutely right. I've been foolish and selfish. I apologize. Settle the matter as you think best. What if... We just started thinking about what we deserved according to the gospel and, and what Jesus did for us. Do you think that that would change the way that we interact with other people? And I got to tell you, if it doesn't change that, <laughs> you don't understand the gospel. Now, when you think about this situation between Abram and Lot, You would think that the story would turn out like this. Abram's magnanimous. He's so giving, charitable, peaceable with his nephew. Lot is just going to say, you know what? I am so sorry for acting the way I do. But here's the thing. Sometimes when you lay down your rights, someone is very happy to trample upon them. When Jesus came to this earth to lay down his rights, what happened to his rights? Well, the same will be true for us, or could be. Look at how Lot responds in verses 10 to 13. The story continues, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, so Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan. Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So you can envision this scene. They're standing up at an altitude of about 3,000 feet. And Lot is left with a decision to make. Now there's this place along the continental divide in the Rocky Mountains where a small stream separates itself. 
And you would think when a, a drop of water goes along this stream that uh, a movement to the right or to the left wouldn't be that big of a deal. It would be inconsequential. But the outcome of the drops is totally different. One drop goes to the west and eventually flows into the Colorado River and empties into the Gulf of California into the Pacific Ocean. Another drop goes east until it flows into the Mississippi River and dumps into the Gulf of Mexico and then into the Atlantic. So here you have two drops of water, two entirely different destinations, but one small turning point that determines the outcome. How many decisions in life are like that? In the moment, seemingly insignificant, but those choices set into motion a series of events that will affect our lives and then the lives of our children and then the lives of our grandchildren after us. And lots in one of those moments. Notice how he forms his decision. It says that he saw, but it also lets us know that he didn't see. He saw, but he didn't see. What could he see from that high elevation? Well, he could see this beautiful Jordan Valley. It's well watered. It's lush. It's like the Garden of Eden. It's like Egypt. It is beautiful. He'd be able to set down his tents and, and trade his commodities and live in luxury. Notice what the verbs tell us. He lifted up his eyes. He saw he chose for himself. That language sounds kind of familiar. It sounds kind of like Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, when the woman saw the tree was good, that it was delightful to the eyes, that it was going to make one wise, she took. Lot sees. Eve sees, only it's a superficial self-serving kind of seeing. It's uh, what's in it for me type of look. It's seeing with the eyes of want and desire, but no other considerations are made. He doesn't ask, will this be good for my wife and daughters? Or will I be able to stay connected with God if I make this decision? Or how will Uncle Abraham fare if I choose the land for myself? None of that. That's the problem when we see only with the eyes. There are always a, a host of additional factors that are laying below the surface. And sometimes when I only see with my eyes, I shut off my mind and my heart. And Moses makes it clear that that's what's happening here. Look at that little side comment in verse 10. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And then look at verse 13. He notes a second kind, just in case you missed the point. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And where did Lot put down his tent? Right next to Sodom. One author notes, Lot was the kind of man who would certainly choose heaven over hell if given the choice, but not heaven over earth. Material prosperity was the bottom line. Eb Dobson notes, that Lot made three mistakes in this decision. First, he chose himself over others. Second, he chose his occupation over his family. Third, he chose the immediate over the future. 
And in making these three decisions, he, he enters into a stream that is now going to take him off to the east. And in the book of Genesis, when it talks about someone heading off to the east, it's talking of someone moving further and further away from God. That's why I had to pray fervently when God called me to New England. And so there is this digression in the life of Lot. First, he's next to Sodom. And then later on we read that he's living in Sodom. And then later on we read that he's sitting at the gate in Sodom, which means he's no longer just simply a spectator. Now he's complicit because sitting at the gate means you're a leader in that community. I'll bet that Lot reasoned within himself, it's okay, I can come to Sodom, this very evil, wicked place, and and I'm just going to kind of camouflage in. I'll just be a part of this community because I want to reach people for Jesus. And I'll tell you what will happen. People will see me living out my good testimony and prospering before God, and just droves and droves and droves of people are going to come to Christ. Well, how many people came to Christ in Sodom? God and Abraham have this argument, and God says, if there's ten people, I'll spare the city. Is there ten? No. Lot's son-in-laws won't even run out of the city with him when he says that judgment's coming. So this is the story of Lot. He begins with a simple decision. He puts down a tent. He heads east, and he ends up in a cave drunk with nothing, a big, fat nothing burger. Who won, Lot or Abraham? Well, let's see. Let's continue in the text, verses 13 onward, 14 onward. The Lord said to Abraham, After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled in the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. What an amazing promise. I mean, he must have just been stunned by the generosity of God. Not only is God reaffirming this promise, but he's also intensifying the promise. That's what God does along the way in your spiritual life. When you start pursuing the things of God, he gives you a deeper taste of those future goodnesses that he's going to give us in Christ Jesus. And so Abram's head, God says, lift up your eyes. I just imagine God taking him and gently lifting up his head by the chin and saying, look up and out, Abram. I'm giving you all of this land, including those possessions that Lot just took. And what about his offspring? He says, look at the dust. It's going to be more numerous, and they're going to live in this land in perpetuity. So God talks of Abram looking at the dust and up at the stars, and I believe that God's doing this because anytime he would look down or up or outward, he would see the promises of God. I'll bet that this encounter with God left Abram speechless. I'll bet one of these promises was better than all of those Ferrari camels that he got down in Egypt. I'll bet it's better than water. I'll bet it's better than being right. Do you know that you can live this type of life too? You can be generous. 
You can willingly lay down your rights. You can lavish others with grace. This is the point of this text this morning. The main point of the text is not about conflict resolution. It's not about making the best sort of choices or how we make choices. Certainly great principles, but the big point of this text this morning is that you can live a life of forgiveness, grace, generosity. You can live a magnanimous life. Because God has promised to be so good to you in Christ Jesus. You don't have to take. You don't have to get even. You don't have to assert your rights. You don't have to worry about someone trampling upon your generosity. You know why? Because God will worry about those things for you. And he's eternally rich. He's infinitely rich. And he has promised to shower us, overwhelmingly shower us with blessings in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 7, Paul says that we are redeemed. Why? So that in the coming ages, that means eternity, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Have you ever heard someone say that heaven's going to be boring? What a stupid statement. An absolutely stupid statement. It's not going to be boring, not one bit. Each day in heaven is going to be better than the day before. God is going to be continually drawing from his infinite chest of blessings and riches and showering them upon us. He's going to reveal more of his beauty to us. He's going to impress upon our hearts how deeply loved we are in a way that we never understood or could fathom before. He's going to continually ignite passions within us that we didn't even know that we had. That's why Paul says in, in Corinthians that his sufferings were momentary light afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory. Now get this, beyond all comparison. You know what that means? You can't even fathom how good heaven's going to be. You can't envision it. You can dream about it. But those dreams are going to fall infinitely short of what it is. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that make you just want to shout out hallelujah? Doesn't it make you want to tell other people about Jesus? I hope so. Genesis 12, 2. I will bless you so that, purpose, you will be a blessing to others. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the orphan. I will bless you so that you will go to that 33% who have never heard the name of Jesus and tell them about him. I will bless you so that you can take your material prosperity as an American and shower it upon the nations by investing in God's global kingdom. Don't be that sponge that gets saturated and stagnant. That would be selfish. That would be like little kids fighting over the cookies while the world is in a collision course with hell. Why is that that conference, sitting there thinking about this story, I just said to myself, this is the major tragedy of Lot's life. Lot had eternal treasure, and he chose comfort and ease over God's unconventional plan. What will you choose? 
I was thinking about this, and I ran into some good friends of ours at the conference, JJ and Melissa Alderman, beautiful people. And God has been doing some extraordinary things through Togo um, and, and through them. Uh, they showed this video. JJ got up and, and presented a video to us, and it was so nostalgic because four years ago, I had the pleasure with Olga Smith of taking a, a group of young people to Togo, and we saw these faces of these Togolese Christians that we'd been working alongside of. And, and one of those faces that we saw was this guy named Mawilolo. He was this uh, young, enthusiastic disciple with a guitar four years ago. He'd come out of voodoo and came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and the Spirit of God's been working in his heart and developing him. And J.J. stood up and shared that Mawulolo will be planting a church in Anaho, which is a part of Togo that we actually went and visited. And he's going to be a pastor. And just last week, he led 20 people to Christ. I mean, God's doing incredible things. I remember sitting there thinking when I was uh, just dreaming with J.J. about this land that he loves, that he had been a part of since he was six years old. Uh, wow, God is going to do so much through this vision. This is like buying into Amazon when it was just a startup company. This is amazing. Now, just four short years later, J.J. started with no help. There's five full-time missionaries already committed. Fifteen are making their way to go. Multiple churches planted. Hundreds, thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. And now they want to head over into Benin, a sister country. You know what's even more amazing about this story? Is that when J.J. left for college, he had no intentions of going back home. He had said to himself, I want to be a part of God's plan, but I'll just resource it through my money. So he had a goal of being a millionaire by 25, 10 million by 30. But God grabbed hold of his heart. God gave him that unconventional call. He gave him a vision of a much different life, a richer life. Essentially, God said, if you will entrust yourself to my plans, purposes, and ways, then I will do exceedingly and abundantly more than anything you could ask, think, or imagine through you. Is J.J. any different than us? Does he have it spiritually in a way that we don't? He just, you know, just has that charisma or whatever it is that some people have? I think you know the answer to my own question. No. In fact, he's a lot like us. He has the same internal conflicts. Should I trust God? Should I go my own way? He can only see within his own field of vision. He has desires and fears and hopes and dreams, and yet the God of the universe laid something profound upon his heart. Togo, West Africa. So my question to you, what is God laying on your heart? Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?